You're listening to Myself with Others, and I'm your host, Adam Schatz. This is the second part of my conversation with the singer-songwriter, guitarist, and producer, Arto Lindsay. It's also the 10th and final episode of the first season of Myself with Others. In the second part of our conversation, Arto spoke to me about his work as a producer. He also talked to me about his ideas on musical creation, on identity, and on his current project, which is a piece based on the work of Dante that he has made with uh, the bassist Melvin Gibbs, his longtime collaborator. It's a wonderful conversation, and I hope you'll stay with us for the second part. Thanks. interviewed about production at some point and said that there were two kinds of producers. There are the invasive producers and there are the wimps. You were joking. This was an interview you did, you did in Norway that I heard. Right. Um, well, but I thought nobody would ever hear it because I did it in Norway. Before. Yeah, I heard, I heard it in a podcast while I was thinking about our conversation. But you, you developed a, a working relationship with Caetano um, in the 80s as, as his producer, as the co-producer with Peter Scher of his album, The Stranger. I wonder, did that experience also intensify your interest in making the kinds of records you began to make in the 90s? No, I didn't, never thought of it that way. But I mean, it's like, I never thought I would be a producer. I actually produced a record back in the 81 in Italy, but that was like a one-off, you know, and I had uh, I had worked with Eno and I had read a lot right, of Eno. Right, because Eno had produced yeah. that, no, that no-wave compilation, right? Right, and yeah. so, and also Eno... Some of his records were revelations, you know, like Another Green World was definitely uh, the first electronic record I heard where you could, you felt like somebody was playing the electronic instruments. You could feel someone's hand in there, you know. And then he said a lot of interesting stuff in interviews, you know. So when I got into the studio, I had that kind of, you know, background, you know. But I never thought I would be a producer because I can't play a harmony instrument, you know what I mean? So I couldn't do tracks for somebody or I couldn't say, oh, that chord at that point, you know what I'm saying? Now I've done it so often that I can say, there. Many times I can hear when something's out of tune or when the note is wrong or et cetera, you know, all that stuff, I, just from experience. But Peter was a, an obvious producer, you know what I mean? Because he played keyboards. Well, also when he understood the studio, when he understood frequencies and he understood the way a studio works, you know, many, many things. And um, incredibly talented guy. Who's, I think, teaching music in Switzerland now. Yeah, he? teaching, but does a lot of soundtracks for independent films. Keeps busy. He hasn't put out a record of his own in a long time. Or he's barely ever put out records of his own, but he, you know, is continue, he makes music. But with, I mean, had you met Caetano in Brazil? I met Caetano uh, because when I made uh, Envy, um, I wanted to get it released in Brazil, and I went to Brazil, and I didn't manage to get it released, but I gave a bunch of copies to Caetano, and we became friends, because we had already met here in New York. And so um, I went to visit him and took it to him, and he loved it, and he passed it around to some other musicians that, in Brazil that he thought might like it. Then a friendship developed, and it was actually Bob Hurwitz. Of none such. Who suggested that we work together. That's the same Bob Hurwitz that got his gig because he told the American company they should release the Keith Jarrett Cologne concerts 
Oh, because right, he had been working for Manfred Eicher at ECM then. I yeah, mean, I don't know, but I'm yeah. just saying, you know, I'm just trying to uh, to demonstrate a paradox here. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> now it was it was Ryuichi Sakamoto who encouraged you to make your first quote unquote bossa nova album, True. the Corpo Sutil, the subtle body. Right, and then when I played it for Kaitono, he said, "This is not bossa nova," and I said, <laughs> "I never said it was. I never said it was." <laughs> It, it begins with a song where you're singing over uh, electronics by Brian Eno. The song I, I wrote with Amadeo Pache from, from Blonde Redhead. And then Eno came in and did treatments on it. Ah. You know, it didn't start with the It didn't start. Work. Oh, no, okay. No. And it's called Four Skies. Let's, let's listen to a little bit of it. One sky unstable Even awesome songwriter it's also just it's a it's a poem what you what you've written you know there's a writer called uh curzio malaparte of course he's an italian writer who had been a fascist and later became a communist and wrote that wonderful novel caput about world war ii from the from the vantage point of the axis powers exactly it's a great novel and uh yeah he's a really really interesting writer and he also built that house that stars in contempt you know the godard movie of course and that jets out into the Mediterranean on the hill in Capri, you know, and where Bridget Bardot sunbathed. Speaking of which, in your writing, I mean, in your, your use of words, I, I sense that you watched a fair amount of Godard. I did. Yeah, I did. Especially just the use of quotation, the fragmentary. I just, I sense a Godardian sensibility. Yeah, no, I mean, the other, I also love John Ashbery. You know, I hate it when people say so-and-so influenced me because that's like saying, oh, I'm like so-and-so, you know, and I don't think it works that way. But I do aspire to a similar kind of, you know, make the reader put it together sort right, of Because he, he takes these things that are very mundane and then when you read closely, it's kind of hard to make sense of, at first it's hard to make sense of what he's saying. Yeah, I mean, I used to think or describe the songwriting, the lyric writing as like, I wanted it to sound conversational and natural, but then when you actually listen to what's being said, you're like, huh? You know, it, it becomes stranger. But yeah, I love John Ashbery. I recently read a quote by Ben Lerner about John Ashbery that was great. It's like, when you finish reading a John Ashbery poem, you can't remember what it was about or anything about it. But while you're reading, you're having an incredible experience. And you're left with a sense impression or a feeling. Yeah, but... I you're, like not, you're not bereft after you've read it. I, I, I kind of, kind of, kind of hope you would be. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it's just, you know, you know. But um, 
Yeah. I mean, Brian's a little bit like John Cage in the sense that their writing had almost a larger impact than their music itself. You know, the, this was the literature that we were imbued with when we were kids, you know, like uh, Cage, Burroughs. These were the real touchstones. All those Grove Press books, too, I guess. Yeah. I was thinking about this. I mean, yeah. had you read much Brazilian literature, like Machado de Assis, for example? I had read uh, a little bit, you know, Machado and yeah. stuff, but not not that much. And I, I never read... Uh, Jorge Amado? I did read Jorge Amado, but I hadn't read Guimarães Rosa, who's a dense, kind of polyphonic, you know, sort of writer. I've read stories and stuff, but I haven't. You know, when I moved to the States to go to college, that's when I really needed to listen to Brazilian music and... So it was like almost like making presence something that was absent. Yeah, you know, I mean, that's when I became obsessive about whatever I could get my hands on, you know? And then when I moved to New York, I actually met amazing uh, artists. You met Helio, right? I met Elio Etisica and got to spend a lot of time with him. And also Wally Salomon was my roommate. He's a lyricist that was, a, you know, like sort of a late tropicalist and when Caetano and Gilberto Gil went into exile. He directed a Gal Costa show, and he's a great lyricist and poet and a great friend, you know, and we were actually roommates on um, the Lower Side. There's also a lot of humor in in your lyrics. I'm, I'm just going to read a couple of lines from your song, Animal Animale. I'm writing the history of sex. I'll read it out loud to you. I'll pay all respect to you. I'll study geography, too. <laughs> There's just, there's a wonderful sense of play in, in the lyrics, too. And... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hadn't thought about that one for a while. And I, I just, you know, I, I remember seeing you perform, I think it might have been the first time that I saw you perform. You'd released Mundo Civilizado, which I thought was just an incredible record. And I saw you, I, I took a friend to see you perform at the Old Tonic and was just blown away by the performance. And I mean, it wasn't just the, you performed uh, Prince's Erotic City, I remember. It wasn't just the music's beauty, it was kind of the way that you inhabited it and, and just the, the charisma of your singing and the stagecraft. And I, I mean, I suppose you'd, art, you'd been developing that for years, ever since DNA, but I'm wondering, I mean, do you feel that you become a different person when you're on stage? I mean, do you have a particular relationship to live performance? When I started, I thought about it, you know, in DNA, and I, I'd been reading my Brecht, and I, I also resented the kind of rock star drag, you know, I didn't want to feel like I needed to act a certain way to play that role. I wanted to be able to, you know, put it on and take it off at will, and I tried, you know, I had a song where I tried to switch between male and female, and I very consciously kind of would, would uh, sort of take over the room and then I would kind of shrug it off and talk to the people in the front row. And, you know, I tried to keep it open, you know what I'm saying? So I was, I was interested in being on stage. And the very first time we played at Max's, I remember this incredible feeling of, I can do this, you know, which I think many people, many artists describe that moment when they start doing something, you realize, wow. You know, it's like you're playing the piano and suddenly like, it doesn't sound bad, you know what I mean? It's not bad, you know? And it's like you feel, it makes you feel, makes you feel something, you know? But the thing, you know, the thing is, you know, like in the albums that you started making with Subtle Body, even though the lyrics are sometimes cryptic and, and indirect, they they really do, in a, I think, in a very visceral way, capture emotions. Right. You know, 
probably more so than some of the earlier music. You know, if we're gonna, if we're talking about Brecht, they're less defamiliarizing. They're, right. they're, I mean, you're even doing covers of Al Green and Prince, and I right. don't think that your cover of Al Green is ironic. No. And these are songs you love, and you're really... Yeah, and I think there's a lot of ways you can do a song. And there's no right way to do a song or something, but maybe that's not true. What's the question now? What, well, what, I guess Roy, I, I, I guess no, no. I guess I wondered whether, as you became more confident ah. as a, as a singer, did you feel more able to just to convey emotion in a much more direct fashion? Not to. I'm not suggesting that that irony is simply a way of hiding. I, I don't want to imply that, but I'm just wondering. No, I think irony has a bad rap right now. Yeah, that's you know. I certainly think irony is it's a great great tool. Yeah, you know, and, and yeah, I think I became more conscious. I mean, I have a hard time writing direct lyrics. Usually when I write something that's very direct, it sounds really corny to me the next day. So I sort of have to be direct, you know. But when I make a record, sometimes the last song we write, I manage to be kind of direct. Like on Cuidado Madami, the last studio record I did, one of the last songs I wrote is called Seu Pai, which means your father, but it's in Portuguese. And the line is, um, your father was a bandit, and then you came along. you know. And to me, that's a very heartfelt political song. It's very direct, you know what I'm saying? It's like, it's a corrupt world, and you're a beautiful kid. That kind of writing doesn't come easy to me. And um, I also don't like the sing-along politically correct kind of thing you know at the same time i love gospel but maybe you know because i don't that's different though. i'm not a believer yeah you know what i'm saying i can inhabit that belief completely you know what i'm saying i you know uh, aj uh, arthur jaffa says uh they ask him if he's a believer because he, he he did this beautiful collage of gospel tapes and he said well i believe in black people's belief you know, so if you believe in other people's, I certainly believe in other people's belief, you know, yeah. But you do bring a, a quite a bit of fervor to the, love, to, to the love songs that you sing. Yeah, I mean, that doesn't mean I believe it. <laughs> no, uh, uh, yeah, I think uh, there's a good anecdote here, but now I can't think of the guy's name, who, a writer that I love who was married to Nikki St. Fall who was the only American member of Olipo. Oh, yeah, 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 Harry Matthews. Okay, Harry yeah, Matthews. Yeah, who wrote, who wrote My Life in CIA, which, which is a I brilliant love. book. I love My Life in CIA. I love Harry Matthews, and we have a, we had a really good friend in common, and she took my records to him because I said, wow, I want to meet Harry Matthews and stuff, and he said something like, why in the world do you think I would like this? <laughs> he hated it. So uh, you never can tell. Also, you know, Vito Acconci, who I emulated as a as a youngster and or tried to emulate, and then we became friends, and then we worked together, and then when I did Subtle Body and these kind of records, he was like, I don't know, man, that's kind of icky. You know, that was his reaction to it. He just couldn't, he didn't like it. You don't always... Uh, because it wasn't, because the music wasn't... I don't know, he didn't like it. Well, I don't yeah, know why, I don't yeah, want I can't... Yeah say why he didn't like it you know i guess he didn't like crooners or you know i mean chris got too had a said something like oh now he thinks too many chords makes the music good and it's like hey you know it's not all rock and roll you know what i'm saying there you know there's another continent down there you know what i'm saying 
if it's paying your bills, you know, you're living off whatever you steal from us, you whatever. But uh, actually, I wanted to ask you something before about this whole mute, you know, the music that you're living off, as it were, because, you know, right now there's this whole kind of moral panic, particularly in the States right now, about so-called cultural appropriation. And cultural appropriation really is how music has developed. I'm not saying that there aren't forms of it that should raise one's eyebrows, especially when people's cultural property got stolen or when some musicians made more money off of, you know, the music of, let's say, you know. I think the important thing is the acknowledgement and the sharing, because I think music has proceeded often by blending music from different places. You know what I'm saying? Arthur Crudup, Elvis Presley, you know, I mean, this is not new. Miles, Bob Dylan, any, any number of yeah. people. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, you know, but this does, I mean... It doesn't give you pause at all, I mean, about... Well, no, I mean, I definitely... Like, for example, the fact that you did Prince's Erotic City. I mean, to me, this is... I, I, I love your version of Erotic City. I have no problem with it either, politically, but one can imagine someone complaining, what gives him the right to sing Prince? You know, the law... You know, in America, you can just record somebody else's song and then as long as you pay them, they're they're publishing. Yeah, these are questions that need to be talked about and need to be thought about and are one of the... It's like the subject of the present. I'm not finding the right phrase here, but you know what I'm saying? This is what the present is about to some extent, is understanding this. Yeah. You know, and we are in the process of understanding this. I mean, I I guess, I mean, the reason I'm asking it too is that I wanted to just to get a sense from you of how you feel this cultural moment and it's, you know, it's just its concerns, its obsessions, its inclinations. Okay, think of of jazz. Think of jazz. Jazz is a black music. Then white people started to play it. That's good. Black people sometimes made it difficult for white people to get in. That's the way it goes, buddy. You know what I mean? Because you've been treating us like shit for thousands of years. You know, so big deal. Put up or shut up, you know, whatever. There are these, you know, okay, that's the situation. But what's wrong is when a white guy becomes a huge star because he's white and the record companies will push him and the black people who thought of it just have to go work in the post office. That's wrong. You know what I mean? So the, the every, you know... As we say in Portuguese, cada caso é um caso. It's like there are many cases. Yeah, we have to be more discri- We have to be more discriminating in our thinking about. Yeah, and I think we will be. And I think this moment of mass indignation is necessary. You know what I'm saying? And then you can't. You know, you're not going to change anything unless you break a couple. For a kind of things. reshuffling. To no, occur. you have to go too far. Yeah. In order to make any kind of change, it's 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 a it's a it's a subject that I think we need. To Need to talk about. I mean, are are you talking about this subject with other musicians and artists these days? Of course. Yeah, Yeah, everybody's talking about it. You know, in the cultural sphere, that's what we're for. Partly is to talk about those things. You know what I mean? The museums, art criticism, music criticism, the music. You know what you do. That's 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 your role. Yeah, that's that's what that's what we do you know what i mean we let let the conversation happen maybe we don't necessarily initiate it but we allow it to happen you know
I think that you know throughout your career you've had this real flair for drawing upon sounds and forms in in popular music whether it's certain kinds of brazilian music or drum and bass or or sampling and and to to take those sounds and forms and to create really personal songs what we hear is a is an Ardo Lindsay song uh, so i'm wondering like what have you what are you listening to now what are the kinds of music that excite you lots of music like i listen to o'malley like i listen to young thuggins like kind of atlanta stuff you know but i also listen to the same stuff i've always listened to um i mean pop smoke is like the kind of most exciting thing that happened in the last couple of years i was lucky enough to live on fulton street and it was like a constant soundtrack because it's like it just it was like two years of of uh of pop smoke the music what's something that's happening in brazil is is a candomblé rhythms are getting more more mainstreamed you know and they're like the foundation of samba and um now and they've always been kind of structural or something but now they're kind of getting foregrounded you know in a different way and there's a really great group Humpiles Rumpiles which is a a percussion and horn group you know from Bahia is Carl is Carlinos Brown still making music? Um, not very often. He's he's a judge on a TV talent show. But whenever he does make music, he's still kind of amazing. He's still amazing. He just doesn't make too much music these days. What kind of impact has the Bolsonaro has Bolsonaro's authoritarianism had on culture in Brazil? Well, he's trying to starve culture because he kind of considers culture to be a leftist phenomenon, you know what I'm saying? And he's trying to starve it in any way he can. Culture in Brazil depends on the government. It's kind of halfway between the European and the and the US model, you know? Like here it's all private, Europe it's all government, except for Eurovision or whatever. And um, Brazil, culture has relied on <clears throat> government money for a lot of things. And he's just literally trying to starve that, you know? Does does this period in Brazil remind, bring, stir any memories for you of the military government? Of course it does, and he, I mean it's deliberate on his part. He's trying to, to to whitewash that history. What happened? Yeah, he's he looks more and more like a, a, a you know like a, a the fascist leaders of the past or something. It's grim. It's grim. I mean, we got two years or a year and a half or something until the election. I don't think he'll win, but it's going to be the same kind of situation where will he leave? You know, the same kind of thing we, we went through here. You know? do, you, do you vote in Brazil, Arno? No, I vote here. When you first arrived, we were talking about this um, this new work that you're creating with Melvin Gibbs about, about Dante in, in Ravenna. Right. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? I got a chance to propose something to commemorate uh, Dante's 700th anniversary I think it's the anniversary of his death actually and um, I remembered that I'd seen this great Italian actor Carmelo Bene read Dante back in the early 80s in 1981 in a memorial service really in a memorial event for the victims of a bombing on the Bologna train station the bomb was set by the right wing they tried to pin it on the left but they were found out and he read Dante a selection from Dante and these so I remembered this and um, it was recorded 
we got the rights, so we're building a musical evening around these readings. And some of the readings will be just as they are. Some of them we'll score. Some of them we'll we'll mess with, and we'll put music in between. You know. And my original idea had been to use a flamenco singer and a Carnatic singer, and um, to write Wayneish lines, sort of moving harmony, and have them sing it you know, but in their styles. Flamenco singer that I wanted to work with couldn't make it, was too busy. And the Carnatic singer? Carnatic singer, I found one, you know, and then we're also using a singer from Southern Italy who's who works in the Tarantella tradition and in other things, and a cello player from Albania, but he lives in, in Italy and he's a great musician, you know, and Melvin and I. Actually, the flamenco singer that I wanted to work with is a guy called Nino, he goes by Nino de Elche, and he calls himself a post-flamenco singer. And his work is really interesting. You might really enjoy it. Mm. He's got a record called Anthology of Anti-Flamenco. Flamenco, and it's a combination. You know, he works with different kinds of people. He works with flamenco people. He works with pop people. He works with improvisers. He does all kinds of stuff. He just did a show with a rock band, and he's a very, very interesting guy. He's collaborated with a guy called C. Tangana, who's a big pop star from Madrid, who made a really great record that I discovered through Nino. You know Rosalia, right? Rosalia is a, is a young singer who started out singing flamenco, and then she made a kind of crossover record, flamenco with whatever, current R.B. and reggaeton styles and stuff. Really, really good. Actually, I heard him with that, that producer has to be American, but no, he's actually Spanish too. And there's an couple of really good producers over there I'd like to know more about. And Tangana's record is really great. He's not a great singer, but he's so smart the way he put together all these things. He's got Toquinho, who's like a Brazilian guy from the 60s, and they do this kind of pastiche thing. He works with Jorge Drexler, you know, kind of a Brazilian-sounding Uruguayan and stuff like that. You know, you sing both in English and in Portuguese, and move very fluidly between the two languages. How do you decide whether you're going to sing a song in Portuguese or English? It just sort of happens. Do you, do you dream in Portuguese or in English or both? Probably usually dream in English, but then sometimes I remember that I dream, I've dreamed in Portuguese too. When I'm there for like long time and don't leave and stuff. Do you feel now that you're kind of in between the two? I mean, do you feel, do you feel Brazilian? No, I mean, I feel like I'm a little of both, you know what I mean? And it kind of depends on what... Because you've been, you've been, you moved back. Uh, I moved what, back. Was in, about in, ten, 10 years ago? 2004, I moved back. But now, I, but in the last couple of years, I've been coming more, up here more and more, reestablishing things here in New York, you know. When I first moved there, I worked mostly in Europe because that's where the work was some extent in Japan. And, and to some extent, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, you, a lot of the, the, the work that you were getting had to do with your connections to the art world as much as with music. A lot of the things I was doing, I don't know about the work. Okay. But yeah, no, no. <laughs> um, yeah, for sure. I did a lot of collaborations um, with a lot of different artists in the last... I've always done that, but I've did a lot of that for, for a while in the last is that is, so. I mean, is that partly to escape some of the claustrophobia of just being in a music world, or is it because of an intrinsic interest in what visual these visual artists are doing? What's, what's the impulse behind these collaborations? 
Well, when I started, I was really interested in art and really, you know, got a lot of ideas from what different artists were doing. A later point, I was really attracted to the way people talked about art because the conversation around music was not so rigorous. It is and interesting. It is, it is dispiriting, isn't it? I mean, I mean, I, I find that the yeah. the quality of music writing just pales in comparison to the writing on literature or or visual art. Absolutely. So at some point, I was really drawn to the to the conversation. You know, artists, the way they can think about their work is really interesting. Uh, the way they can almost make up their own medium, their own form or something, you know, is, which is more difficult to do in music. You know, so it's kind of a challenge. You know, you make friends and then you, you uh, things develop naturally, you know. I mean, a lot of stuff just develops because of opportunities, you know what I'm saying. But do you see yourself as a collaborative artist? Because my sense is that your work always emerges out of collaboration. I do see myself as a collaborative artist. And I mean, another thing that I did, which is difficult at this point to fit into the institutional art world, but I think at some point it will naturally slip in somehow, is the parades that I've done. Because for about 10 years, I was really involved in the carnival in Bahia. And uh, first I went there to visit Caetano, and then I produced Brown, and then I became close to a guy called Alberto Pita, who's a visual artist, but he started his own carnival group. And so I helped put on parades, and I put together bands for floats, so to speak. For the... You did one in New York, too, didn't you? Yeah, I've done these parades all over the place. So I kind of developed this form from as an extension of a carnival parade or something, you know. Weren't you trying to get the city to turn off the lights in, in Times Square for 30 yes, seconds? Yes, I was. That didn't was. work out too well, though. It didn't work out too well. And now, I mean, Times Square, they can't give it away. Like every artist and their mother or their cousin, I don't know what's the least offensive way to put that, but everybody's doing something in Times Square these days. But it was very, very hard for a long time. And I wanted to, uh, did a did a parade in Times Square and... I was working with this guy who had come up with a way to project an image onto a screen that was only visible when you shined a, a infrared light on it. And at that point, people were using the point-and-shoot cameras, which used the infrared to focus, right? And um, it worked really great, like at the scale of this table or something. And so I thought, wow, we'll have like a, whatever, you could have any image, and the image would only be, vi you know, people would be carrying this big white screen down the street, but it would only be visible if you took a picture of it. You could get a picture of it, but you couldn't see it. But then it turned out that it would take massive, a massive projector to make that work. You know, it, it was impossible. That's why I wanted to turn the lights off there, you know. And then I thought, well, let's just turn the lights off and... No, it was impossible. It was exorbitant, right? It would have cost millions of dollars. It would have cost millions of dollars. And now you could probably get away with something like that because New York, Times Square, the Times Square Authority, whatever they're called, they're desperate. And they have been for a while, even before even before the pandemic, to make it a, something more than, than what it has turned into. You know, The last time that I saw you, you were, you were in the recording studio. And, That's right. And a, a mutual friend... Lauren. Lauren, exactly. You know, took me to see you. It was very cool watching you build this record and create these songs. It, it seemed clear to me that, you know, a lot of the ideas were emerging right there. I mean, you were you were experimenting and, and using the studio very creatively. So I kind of wondered, like, what do you when you're not in the studio? What, what are you doing? Are you writing? Are you thinking about the next record? Or, I mean, what, what's your process like when you're not actually in the studio creating the work? There's a lot of reading and listening, conversation, but writing. 
writing, preparing, trying to figure it out, you know, performing, taking care of my kids. I mean, somehow I've, I have stuff to do. I also uh, think it's important to do a lot of nothing, letting things happen, and trying to keep keep that distinguished from inertia, you know, <laughs> trying to keep the sort of like creative emptying out of space different from like just like, you know, whatever, shuffling uh, around on the internet or whatever. A lot of reading. What have you been reading lately? Well, right now... I'm reading a Marguerite de Rob novel that I found at a friend's house. The Ravishing of Little Vistine. Yeah, why is everybody reading that? I don't know. It's a brilliant novel, though. Yeah, I'm halfway through it, but it's everybody I've mentioned to it says, "Oh, that's." Don't ask me to explain the plot, which it's a very confusing book, but it's absolutely right. brilliant. It's one of her, I think, it's probably her best novel, Le, Le Ravissement de Little Vistine. And why? I don't know. Are, are a lot of people reading it right now? Yeah. So really? you, you just mentioned it right off, and I mentioned it to somebody else who said... Probably right. the best book. Well, recently I bought a book. It's a dialogues between Dura and, and Godard. Godard. Of course, I mentioned that to my friend Dominique gonzalez Forster, who is a French artist, and she's like, oh, yeah, you know, da, da, da. they do everything first over there. But they do have the advantage of having incredible movies all the time and a great conversation around film over there, which we don't have here. Yeah, so I bought some other Dura books, and I've actually been reading a magazine called November Mag. It's a internet only so far, and a couple of friends and a few other people put it together in their interviews. And there's a young artist called Arya Dean. She's really smart. She's a writer as well as an artist. She's one of the people involved. And I've been reading her writing wherever I can run it down. I mean, I guess last year I read um, Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments. The Science Idea, idea Hartman. Yeah, that's like maybe the best book I read in the last couple of years. I think that's an incredible book. I read some Clarice Lispector, who's like a huge big deal all over the world, but I and, never... And she's Brazilian. And she's Brazilian, and I hadn't read it before, and I finally got around to reading it. And, you know, I think these gaps are important. <laughs> I hope they are, because I have huge <laughs> gaps in my reading. I read a lot. Then somebody says, oh, so-and-so, and you're like, uh, uh, uh. And I imagine that's also important to your own your own writing. Uh, I don't, I mean, you mentioned Ashbery earlier. I was actually kind of curious which other poets have been important to you. Well, lately I, I read uh, a lot of Ben Lerner. I really like his poems, and I really like uh, Maggie Nelson, and I've read everything she's written that I could get a hold of, you know? You know, it, it, right before Trump came in, living in Brazil, I was so encouraged by the fact that Maggie Nelson, Ben Lerner, Hilton Alls, these people were getting a lot of recognition. They were kind of moving to the to the kind of central position. And I thought, wow, that's great. You know, we're kind of moving in the right direction. And then Trump comes in. <laughs> you know, whoa, got that one wrong. But uh, in the last year or so, I read, what's it called? Black and Blur? Is that Fred Moten? Fred Moten, yeah. yeah. You know, and, Do you like uh, it? Yeah. I really like Fred Moten. He's like intense. I mean, how do you feel about the cultural scene now, though, in the States? As you, of course, now Trump is out of the way. Trumpism is not. But do you feel a sense? You've mentioned all these, you know, writers getting, I mean, people like Hilton and Maggie Nelson receiving, you know, attention. attention. I mean, do you feel that American literary and music and musical culture is dynamic and promising right now? I mean, do you do you feel excited about where we are? I don't feel that it's particularly exciting right now, okay. but I feel like there's like a, uh, an opportunity or something, you know? It sounds totally 
corny, but um, that's a Bob Dylan quote. He said, I feel like there's an opportunity, a cultural <laughs> opportunity now. Uh, no, um, yeah, I think stuff is happening. I mean, I think the institutions, like the art institutions, the art world, you know, is kind of torn right now between this need to talk directly about uh, what's going on now. You're talking about you know, racism and structural yes. injustice. Race and, and where the money comes from in yeah. the art world yeah. to support all this freedom. Sure. So these things are... Yeah, you're talking about the, like, the protests at the Whitney against candors and, and... All this stuff, yeah. yeah. And at, the, at MoMA as well. Yeah, and just the way, you know, those are symptoms of the way many, many people are thinking. And there's a feeling sort of protective about other aspects of, of art. And, and so there's a Intense conversation. Yeah, and there, I mean, and in there, music, I mean, we have yeah. a similar uh, conversation about how music gets distributed, you know, and how much we get paid by Spotify and YouTube and all this stuff. So it's like... Well, it's been semi-catastrophic, maybe even catastrophic. Yeah, I mean, Mark, been terrible. I, so Mark, we, Mark Rebeau, is, you know, as you know, is, has been very active in, yes. on these issues. Yes. Rebeau is like longtime activist. Melvin also. Well, he's working with with Mark. They were working together. They're working together on this this, this musical workers coalition. Right. I think Melvin has left that group now, but but Mark is still part of that. I mean, the thing that's you know that that seems to me it's not a it's not a contradiction necessarily, but it it is a tension between the need on the one hand to confront legacies of racism and other forms of injustice, the fact that so much money is coming from people who have very dicey and unsavory means of making that money on the one hand, right? Urgency around addressing these issues. And on the other hand, the need for art to cultivate a space that is at least, that remains personal, that can't be reduced to collective concerns or protest. I mean, you were talking earlier about how how boring you found certain kinds of politically correct art. How do you respond to that, the injustices, and yet at the same time preserve this kind think, of subjectivity. Uh, you know, let, let's see let's see if this particular definition of subjectivity is not just a uh, uh, white European male form of ethnic art or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Let's see, is, is that what we mean by subjectivity? Is that the only form of subjectivity? So let's see. I mean, I think these are the things that are getting worked out now. And we just you don't know, know the answers. We don't know the answers, but that in itself is kind of a pretty interesting place to be. Yeah, I think that I think that the world is at an interesting point, and also climate change is more and more urgent, and population decrease. What's that going to mean? It's crazy what's happening to reproduction, <laughs> human reproduction. You know, it's really, really going down. You know, so that's going to make a huge difference, and we can't really. In that, in that sense, John Luther Adams. Right, is a really pioneering composer because all mo- much of his work is about climate change now. Right, that's another thing. Is like, what is being about something? What does that accomplish? You know, so that's another. You know, being about and and embodying or influencing, they're all different ways that art functions. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, and way what you're saying is, it's not simply that we're trying to figure out whether that particular kind of art is like a white ethnic art. Right. It's all art. It's also what is art for? Yeah. Well, I think art is 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 for a lot of different things. Certain things are emphasized at certain times. You know, but art. You know, art is of its time, but art should also be or can also be timeless. You know, so there. It's not an either-or kind of situation, you know. It's a both-and. It's a both-and. Thanks a lot, Ardo. It's great to have you. 
Thank you. been listening to Arto Lindsay on Myself with Others, a podcast by Adam Schatz. Myself with Others is produced by Richard Sears. The theme for Myself with Others is composed and performed by Richard Sears. All other selections are by Arto Lindsay. Thank you for listening and please subscribe. Subscribe.